When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, to walk, um, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though I, they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord he will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt trembling like sparrows, from Assyria fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, Israel with deceit, and Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. Thanks very much for reading uh, James and, uh, and good morning. I don't need to ask you to keep your Bibles open because you always do that. And if it's on page 908, that would be especially helpful. It's good to be here this morning and with a voice that I'm expecting will, at last, will last at least the length of the sermon. Um, for most of last week, I was wondering whether that would be the case. And I know many will be disappointed that I've recovered sufficiently <laughs> not to require a shortened sermon. Let me pray. Lord, this is a wonderful passage that speaks of your amazing love. I'm fearful of saying anything that would hinder our grasp and our understanding of what we have in your word. So Lord, please direct me as I speak that you may use the words which I believe you have given to me so that you may receive the glory and that the body of your people here will be stirred to grow in greater love for you. Amen. Amen. Well, for the last uh, two Sundays, we've been in the books of Ezekiel and Daniel. Uh, both prophets were taken captive, being removed from Judah to Babylon when Jer Jerusalem was conquered. There's a twofold shift as we come to the book of Hosea. Chronologically, we, uh, Josiah, Hosea, 
sorry, I was going to say Josiah. I've uh, got Josiah in my mind. Hosea lived about 150 years earlier than Daniel. So we go back in time. And geographically, Hosea's ministry uh, as a prophet focused on the northern kingdom of Israel, whereas Daniel and uh, Ezekiel were there in Jerusalem in the uh, southern, uh, southern nation. Most of the Old Testament prophets were required to suffer. It was the nature of their calling. I will leave you to judge how Hosea's suffering ranked against Daniel's experience. Daniel only had lions to contend with. Hosea had a wife to contend with. <laughs> a wayward wife. It's difficult to imagine how Hosea felt when the Lord spoke to him. Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. And the Lord explains that the nation of Israel is like an adulterous woman. Both are unfaithful. Israel is idolatrous. It is unfaithful to the Lord. Inevitably, Goma, uh, the adulterous woman whom Hosea marries, is unfaithful to him but he does, does not give up on her. The Lord requires this of Hosea in order to illustrate that his faithless wife is, a symbolic, is symbolic of Israel's relationship with the Lord. Israel herself is living like an adulterer. And this is Hosea's message. Her breach of the covenantal relationship with the Lord leaves her open to judgment, which is imminent. Samaria will shortly fall at the hands of Assyria. But that does not mean that the Lord gives up on her. In Hosea, we see the deep, deep love God has for his people alongside his deep, deep anger at their idolatry. I like how one preacher has summarised the theme of the book. We see the shocking undeserved tenderness and the overwhelming just severity of the covenant-keeping God towards his covenant-breaking people. I think this is a very helpful summary of chapter 11 as we see the tension between what sin and disobedience deserve and what love demands. First, as we, before I get into chapter 11, let me read from Deuteronomy 7, which reminds us of how God viewed his people. And this was written shortly after Moses gave the people the Ten Commandments. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to you, to your ancestors, that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. So let us uh, look at uh, chapter 11 of Hosea. 
and the first four verses, which I've put the head in here, God's tenderness, Israel's blindness. I cannot recall any other passage in the Bible that expresses God's passionate heart for his people in the way that these verses do. God speaks as the loving father of Israel who called his son out of captivity in Egypt. The picture is of Israel being a young child, a new nation, helpless and in desperate need to be cared for, nurtured and taught to take their very first steps. The, the tender and the gentle manager, manner in which the Lord demonstrated his love is so evident as we see in verses 3 and 4. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realise. It was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. This is a wonderful picture of the Lord's gentleness, his tenderness, his fatherlike love for his people, and of his humility too, as we've seen those references to him stooping to lift a child and bend down, bending down to feed children. And we've had that wonderful picture, even this morning, as we've seen Chris holding Annie, lifting her up uh, to his cheek. And that's a wonderful picture of how of God's love for his people. But what are the people's response? The two buts in these verses reveal not just indifference, but firstly, they reveal a turning of their backs on the Lord. Verse 2, But the more they were called, they mo the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. The people were lured away from the Lord by the Baals, choosing to worship them, despite God's unrelenting love, his unrelenting care, his faithfulness. But don't blame the foreign gods, for they were no gods at all. It was the hard-heartedness of God's people who deliberately chose to turn their backs on the Lord. The entire Old Testament is really the story of the continued unfaithfulness of God's people, notwithstanding his continued faithfulness. He was continually delivering them from their enemies, but soon they would turn away from him again. And the second part we find in verse 3. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realise it was I who healed them. The people were blinded to the truth of the Lord's kindness. Does that verse have anything to say to us? Do we have a, hate, a daily habit of expressing our gratitude to God for his care and for his love? Or do we fail to realise that the blessings we receive daily are from God himself? Do we take them for granted? I suspect that most of us are thankful people. We have an inbuilt thank you mechanism that triggers automatically when someone eventually answers a call to a call centre, and especially if they're able to help. We thank those who serve us 
in cafes and restaurants, in supermarkets. We may even choose to thank ourselves when we self-service ourselves, self-serve ourselves. Some ladies are better than others, men, in sending thank you cards when we receive gifts. So how many times last week did we use those words, thank you? But how many times were they addressed to the Lord? Let us be people who realise who our helper, our provider and our healer is. And let us never cease to thank him and thank him for his specific blessings rather than a generic thank you. Let us identify the Lord's goodness and be continually thankful to him. And then in verses 5 to 7 we see Israel's rebellion and God's judgment. We see in these verses God's anger and his despair at Israel's rebellion. But he's not raging against them. He's not being vindictive. He's simply heartbroken, just as a parent is when a child chooses to turn away, ignores their pleadings, rejects their love and their care, determines to go their own way, convinced that they will find a better and more fulfilled life elsewhere. This is what the Lord faced. He hates sin, but he is compassionate and forgiving. He forgives when there is repentance. But what we see in verse 5, they refuse to repent. And in verse 7, my people are determined to turn from me. They have made up their minds to the point that they cannot be persuaded. Several translations use the word bent. My people are bent on turning away from me. He recognises that in addressing him as God Most High, they're doing precisely what Isaiah prophesied. In In chapter 29 of Isaiah, we read these words. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honour me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. And of course, Jesus himself quoted these words from Isaiah. They fitted exactly the attitude of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And so the Lord's response is, I will temporarily stop answering their prayers and I won't exalt them, I won't raise them up, I won't come to their rescue. In, in verse 5, we get the words, uh, in the, I think the NIV of verse 5 is perhaps confuse, confusing. Will they not return to Egypt? There's no suggestion that the people might return to Egypt as a country. Egypt is symbolical. It denotes a place of oppression and slavery. That, says Hosea, is what lies ahead. God's judgment is to allow them to be taken into captivity and that will be Assyria. It was a severe judgment but absolutely necessary on account of their continued rebellion and their unfaithfulness. And in verses 8 to 12 you see God's anger and compassion. God agonises over his people. 
How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Admar? How can I make you like Zeboim? Admar and Zeboim were cities that were destroyed alongside Sodom and Gomorrah. The fact that these cities are mentioned might suggest that Israel's sins were comparable and Israel deserved to be treated similarly. Whether or not that was the case, the Lord could not tolerate their sin and their stubborn refusal to repent. It was that refusal to repent that hurt the Lord even more than their sin. The Lord's justice demands the punishment which will be inflicted upon them. The Lord is angry. It is a fierce anger, as we see in verse 9. And yet, they are his people, and nothing changes that. And it causes, as we see in verse 8, it causes his compassion is to be aroused. We might think, and we read the, that last ver, sentence of verse 8, my heart is changed with me, within me. It might suggest that there is a change of heart, uh, a change of mind, that the Lord has changed his mind. I think that's a poor translation. It doesn't mean that the Lord is having a change of mind towards Israel, either as regards his feelings or the punishment that is merited. Several translations use, my heart is turned or my heart recall, recoils. So what I think the final sentence of this verse is saying is meaning, whilst recognising the need for justice and not having any doubts about the judgement, such is the Lord's compassion that he is actually troubled by the pain that his people are going to experience. This reveals God's heart for his people then, just as it does for his people today. Yes, parents can have that same experience, feeling the pain that comes from disciplining their children. But parents are human, they can get it wrong. God's discipline always has a purpose to correct and rebuke and to draw back to himself those who have wandered. God is angry when he has to discipline, for sin, himself, for sin itself makes him angry. But God's discipline is always measured and always appropriate. And so, on account of his mercy, the Lord declares in verse 9, I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. God's anger is still there, but he will not carry it out to completely wipe out the nation. His love overwhelms his anger, or can I say, his love trumps his anger. So God will punish Israel, for justice demands that he does, but his love is such that he will not totally destroy them. There will be redemption and restoration following judgment. The Lord will preserve the covenant with his people. And if we find it difficult to imagine how the Lord is able to hold back the punishment that is fully merited, the reason lies with the fact that we are human 
Our concept of mercy and forgiveness falls far short of how God views them. Our nature is to be cruel and revengeful. His nature is to be full of grace and full of mercy, to be patient, slow to anger, and with that longing to pardon sin. Verses 10 and 11 describe the people eventually responding to God's call and returning to him from the lands where they've been scattered. Let me read those verses 10 and 11. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt that is out of slavery, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. He will bring them out of captivity. God is even more determined to redeem his people than they are to rebel. It is a battle of wills, and God will win. But note in verse 12, Israel will continue to persist in its sin. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, Israel with deceit, and Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. For these uh, closing few minutes, I'd like us to think about God's love, which is the subject of this morning's message. The question is often asked, is God's love unconditional? And it is, for God does not send any, set any conditions on those he loves. He loves because it is his nature to love. In, John chapter, in 1 John 4, verse 8, we're told that God is love. That is his nature. And if we love God, it is only because God loved us first. We also learn that from 1 John 4. But any consideration about God's love is meaningless unless it focuses on Jesus. Did God, 700 years after Hosea, agonise again like he did over Israel? Did he ask, how can I give up my own beloved son to this sinful and idolatrous world? No, of course he didn't. It was more like, how can I not give up my son? How can I not send my son into this world? For the world needs a saviour. The world needs my son. Sending Jesus into the, world, into the world to die on the cross was the ultimate demonstration of God's love. The people of Israel in Hosea's day were blind and stubborn, as we've seen. And that is equally true of people today. People fail to recognise God's goodness. Many people even fail to recognise God as the creator. And many people fail to recognise their own sin and their disobedience towards God. For people are blind to these things. Of course, it's easy to recall what people might call real sin. Just from the headlines of this past week, we can name several 
horrendous crimes. And surely the world thinks, for, for at least those who give any thought to God and judgment, they think that the perpetrators of these crimes will have to face God's judgment and will obviously be found guilty. And they will. But then their accusers will also be found guilty, as will each of us, if only on account of our hidden and trivial sins. Hidden from others and trivial to us and to others, but all offensive to God. For the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Measured against God's standard of holiness, we have all sinned and we all stand to be judged and all stand to be found guilty. It would be pointless to say in our defence that we've never committed any serious offence. Only one verdict awaits every one of us, guilty. But whilst we will all be found guilty of sinning against God, some will escape the punishment of eternal separation from God. Many have their own reasons for believing they will be amongst those who have no need to worry, confident that they will avoid that punishment. Their reasons will be varied, such as, I attend church regularly. I'm basically a good and kind person. I always do my best. I read and believe the Bible. I pray regularly. To all who offer reasons such as these, Jesus, who will be our judge when he comes to earth, will say, you are not my child. You do not belong to me. There is just one reason, only one reason, which will save us from that punishment. The fact that Jesus has already taken the punishment for our sins in our place. We have heard of God's anger, his wrath against our sin. When Jesus came to earth, he came for the purpose of offering himself as a sacrifice for our sin. When he was crucified, he took upon himself all of God's wrath against our sin. That allows God to forgive us. He will not condemn us. He cannot, for Jesus has already taken our punishment. He delights in forgiving us. And so we will have eternal life to live with God and Jesus forever. For the, but for that to happen, we need to do two things. And many of you will be familiar with this, but I think I, need to, I needed to share the truth concerning God's love and his ultimate judgment. The two things we need to do is to accept, to believe that Jesus did die for our sins. And secondly, we need to do something that the Israelites refused to do, to repent, to turn our back on our sin and on our disobedience towards God. As we have seen, God is a tender, gentle, compassionate, merciful, a loving and forgiving God and he longs for every person here today to be part of his family. But the only way into his family is by believing on Jesus and repenting of our sin. If you're not yet a member of God's family, why not decide before you leave today that you will speak to one of the leaders this week, if not today, to learn about the steps you must take to be sure of that promise of eternal life.
but you will not be condemned when Jesus returns. And for those who are already part of God's family through faith in Jesus, can I ask us to think and ask myself about our response to God's love? There may be some who have drifted seriously towards disobedience and sin, or some who are just beginning to drift. There may be some who for weeks, months, have been living distant from uh, our Father God. There may be some who recognise their need to repent of a specific sin, but are struggling to do so. If you think we can help you in any way, please do speak uh, to one of the leaders here. But now let me lead us in prayer. Dear Father God, thank you for your love, your mercy and your compassion. We're sorry that so often we take it for granted. Please forgive us. Please help us to be people who are full of gratitude, especially for the Lord Jesus Christ, who willingly sacrificed himself to secure forgiveness for all who would believe on him. Please help us to be those who daily express our love and gratitude to you. And Lord, we recognise how easy it is to allow Satan to draw us into sin and disobedience. If there are any here today who recognise their need to repent, but are finding it difficult, please will you draw them to yourself and give them a fresh understanding of your love and compassion and mercy and forgiveness. May they willingly surrender their lives in total obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen.